0: Hello and welcome to the Everything Will Be Okay podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Simonov. So this is it, guys. This is the very first episode of the podcast. Uh, I'm really excited to get it started. Our premier guest is, uh, is Bramwell Tovey. If you're in the Canadian music or opera scene, uh, you definitely know Bramwell. He's a conductor and a composer and he's based in Vancouver. He's currently artistic director of Calgary Opera, um, but he's also just, you know, an international conductor. Uh, He's a Grammy Award winner, a Juno Award winner, conducts at the Hollywood Bowl, like, you know, he's in it. He's always struck me as someone who always has this wisdom to give on any sort of topic and so when it comes to like a crisis that involves an entire performing arts industry you know i i go to people who seem to exude a certain amount of wisdom so uh so yeah it was like a no-brainer to talk to bramwell and i'm excited to put him as the first interview in the series because i think it sets a good tone he has a very level head you know he's not afraid of the bad news he's very generous with the good news um so it was cool to talk to him a little bit about the the nuts and bolts of shutting down an opera company and how he's already kind of looking ahead so, I hope you enjoyed this chat i I had fun speaking with Bramwell Toby, so on to the episode Now, are you still in Vancouver? I
1: am although I've been trying very hard to get out of here for a while i I've really been wanting to do is to move to calgary and um and to really uh, let my life sort of go ahead. but I was ill last year with cancer and I had treatment here in Vancouver, which has been inc- quite incredible. Um, the doctors have been amazing. And I've, so I've been sticking with the treatment that I've had here. And now I've been given the, the, re- the green light to work again. I've been, I've been given the all clear until September. But of course, I can't go anywhere and do anything um, because right. of the lockdown. So it's a sort of double whammy at the moment. I'm actually okay. Okay. Uh, And I'm very fit, my hair's grown back, and um, my sort of spirit seems to be coming back in droves, bucketfuls, so I feel kind of, um, I'm feeling pretty normal right now. Um, We're on lockdown, but they're not being terribly severe about it. I think they could be a lot more um, strict over it, Uh, but... um, what do I know? I'm just a musician. I stay, I should stick to what I know, you know, my, but uh, if somebody needs, uh, if somebody needs a piece of music analyzed, I can help with that. But apart from that, I don't know anyone, more than anyone else.
0: Yeah. Stay in your lane. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, all right. So then, you know, if not a person as an artist, um, how do you find yourself responding to, you know, the lockdown, the situation that everyone knows about by now? Well, Um,
1: I'm very ambivalent. Um, Part of me, I've I've only got an electric piano at home here. I'm I'm in an apartment, a rented apartment in Vancouver, having sold my house last summer in the middle of being ill with cancer. So I haven't yet um, got my, I've got a beautiful Steinway that's sitting in storage um, somewhere in Richmond, British Columbia. So um, I've only got my electric piano, so I'm not terribly inclined to um, put Uh, recordings out myself although I I do play a lot and um, I love to play, I love to accompany, I love to to perform and play jazz, but I haven't put anything out there myself. I find an ambivalence about it because inevitably what goes out is compromised. If you're in a uh, a space, for example, a, a pianist working with a singer in the same room um, is uh, just about doable or, or an instrumentalist in the same room. But a lot of what we're seeing on uh, on social media is done with the a cappella app, which means that you end up uh, having this bifurcated or trifurcated screen and people are performing with themselves or they're performing with a karaoke accompaniment of some kind. Uh, it's just a very difficult situation. So as a performing artist, I feel very constricted at the moment. Um, so I've been turning my mind more to things that I can do at the level that um, that I like, but which I, I don't normally have the leisure for. So at the moment, um, I'm very lucky because I'm, I was unlucky last year. I couldn't finish um, a violin concerto for James Ennis for the National Arts Center Orchestra because I was very ill and we didn't know at the time that it was cancer. So um, the orchestra kindly postponed the premiere and now all of a sudden, unexpectedly, I find myself with these weeks stretching before me where I can write and so um, I've uh, completed the concerto or I'm in the act of of completing the concerto and I might even have it scored by the end of the lockdown. So I've got that as a personal project for myself and at the same time... um, I've got some other compositional projects on the go. So I've tended to get away from being the puppet performer, which people normally associate with me. And I've been concentrating more on, on uh, writing, which, I mean, it's something that I do all the time anyway, but yeah. which, um, which I normally don't have enough leisure for. This has given me a, a little mini sabbatical. I'm trying to, you know, trying to feel as positive about it as possible because it's a terrible thing. I, I guess I would be within the vulnerable age group that um, has to be careful. And um, I'm being very well looked after here by my partner, Verena, who's, and I'm just really uh, – who's, who's younger than me and is able to uh, get all supplies in. But I'm, I'm just locked down. I'm, I'm, I'm a little nervous, quite honestly, about going out in case there is some um, – you know, extra vulnerability because of a medical condition. This sounds like a psychiatrist couch rather than a podcast. I hope that's okay. All that information. I think
0: they're one and the same, Bramwell. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did want to get a bit specific with you and, and with all my guests about the, the gigs that you had lined up that, that are obviously not going. Like, what are the specifics that you've lost in your sort of near future?
1: Um, right now, I should be in Bordeaux in France. Last week, I should have been in Helsingborg in Sweden. A week before that, I should have been in London. Um, and uh, next week, I would have been in Calgary for the opening of Ariadne, um, as, uh, which I wasn't conducting. Gordon gerard is, uh, was conducting the project. And, um, and I would have been there as the artistic director of the company. Um, our concerts have been lost for the remainder of the season in Rhode Island, where I'm artistic advisor of the Rhode Island Philharmonic. Um, Uh, The New York Philharmonic has cancelled everything up to June the 16th, and I begin a week with them on June the 17th. But I'm not, frankly, optimistic about that continuing because one of the concerts we're doing the week of June 17th, or supposed to be doing, is a concert with 100,000 people in Central Park. And with the way New York is locked down, I can't see that anyone's going to be very happy about having... um, a free concert from the Philharmonic in Central Park. That'll be a shame to lose that. And I've also got some other engagements with the New York Phil, which are under threat in, um, in July. Uh, I'm supposed to be going to Korea at the beginning of um, at the beginning of July, and at the mo- at the moment, that looks as though it's going to be the only thing that's going ahead. So I've lost yeah. a lot. Um, my yeah. BBC Concert Orchestra um, calendar was decimated for April and May, and um, but you know, it's really. Um, I've just been very fortunate. I'm I, it, staying at home and taking care is as uh, is important. I'm not at the beginning of my career. I'm, um, you know, I'm 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 really uh, in a very senior position, and um, I've looked after my resources over the years. So I'm actually um, confident that I can weather this out. The people I really feel sorry for and who've really lost. Mm-hmm. Are the orchestral musicians who um, work in the gig economy, the freelancers, um, the singers who work in the gig economy, who, um, and despite companies' best efforts, um, are inevitably going to be losing um, large sums of money, and for some of them, it's um, it's right on the poverty line, um, especially singers that are at the beginning of careers. Um, I'm all right. I've done. I'm okay, and. Um, I just I'm trying to find ways in which I can um, help and support uh, other artists who um, who are not um, not as fortunate. I've got three kids too to worry about as well. So uh, yeah. you know, there's a lot to think about. But unfortunately, uh, everyone's safe and everyone's secluding themselves. So uh, so far, we're okay.
0: I'm curious about the company side of things. Like you know. Obviously, we're everything's closed, and all the companies are are dealing with the sort of the not the optics. I mean, no one's really giving them a hard time, but you know, you have to tell the public somehow. As someone who's ahead of a company, I mean, what sort of ripple effects or fallouts with these arts organizations? Something like Calgary Opera or the Vancouver Symphony would they experience um, that the average person might not realize?
1: Mm. Uh, funnily enough, I was sharing some of this information with. Um, a former uh, doctoral student of mine at Boston University yesterday, and um, uh, she was uh, amazed that there were so many things to think about. Here in Calgary, um, it uh, hit us with some rapidity um, uh, when the announcement was made. uh, There wasn't a lot of time um, to react. So I, I can just talk you, if you're interested, quickly through how Thank that you. process happened. So the situation in Calgary was that uh, we were coming very close to, I think we were about two and a half weeks before the commencement of the rehearsal period for Ariadne. And the production itself was coming from Holland. It was actually um, en route at the time, so we couldn't save the transportation costs. Um, In fact, we've been left with a huge cost to send it back to Holland. It's somewhere, right now it's somewhere mid-Atlantic on the way back, but it did make it all the way here. Uh, The um, director had worked on the production for some months and the particular circumstances of transferring um, the production from Holland to Alberta And uh, the conductor, um, who I said was Gordon Girard, he had also worked uh, um, on uh, the production for some months. He had uh, been involved in some of the last-minute casting. Um, When I was uh, taken ill, he um, – Gord uh, was very heavily involved – and the and the, and the singers of course had all individually coached they had spent depending on their own personal style and whether they'd done the role before they had spent money coaching it with um, with uh, repetitors and coaches all over the shop and some of them buying advanced airfares and so it goes on um, we had to make an immediate decision we contacted the artists representatives immediately um, in order to because people were still expecting to buy tickets at the box office and we had lots of unprocessed orders, we had to make um, a pretty much immediate announcements in order to be a squeaky clean. We didn't want to be accused of taking money at the box office or freezing the box office, keeping people's money without having made a public announcement about what the situation was. So we had to operate on a
0: very quick turnaround. Right. Um, and I think we made now, the decision... That- a, a quick question, though, because I've been seeing on Twitter some singers that were complaining that they heard, you know, they didn't get a, a a personal call from the company about cancellations. They heard it after the general public. Is this maybe a reason why that might have been?
1: I think I've seen only one such uh, comment um, ab- about uh, Calgary Opera in that regards. And in that particular instance, that particular artist had um, a United Kingdom agent, although this person was based in North America, they had a United Kingdom agent. And um, that person, that agent, was sent um, the same email at the same time as everybody else, which was at uh, 2 p.m. Um, mountain time, um, which was uh, 9 p.m. in the UK. And the agent didn't read the email until the following morning. So there was a time delay. It's a very. Um, you know, I think uh, everyone was sorry about that. Actually, it happened the same for me. I actually was there were engagements that I was due to conduct when I learned from social media that they had been cancelled. And in some cases, it was about a week. One particular case, it was a week before I had um, official confirmation by email. Um, so uh, it's. Uh, I think when we come to do the big post mortem, everybody will want to make sure these lessons are learned, um, but. You know, it wasn't just artists that were being told that, that there was this situation. Um, it's the people who prepare the wigs, the people who do the hair, the people who do the makeup, the people who do the refreshments backstage, um, the stage crew, uh, the orchestra, um, all the ancillary staff. Um, so the list runs to not just the um, nine or ten main members of the cast, but it also runs to the over a hundred employees. Um, all of whom deserve to hear at the same time, but there aren't a hundred people to ring out hundred calls at the same moment. It's a very difficult logistical job. Um, I noticed that some organisations have done town halls on Zoom. Um, we uh, didn't do that. Um, they've had the leisure of, for example, the Los Angeles Philharmonic apparently this morning did a town hall on Zoom. They were able to. Um, prepare for that, we had to have an immediate um, knee-jerk reaction because our artists were buying um, air tickets and also uh, we were advised that the sooner, and that advice may have been wrong at the time, but one of the pieces of of advice that we had from the government was to announce as soon as possible uh, because otherwise we might not be eligible for what was coming down uh, the pipes from the government. A regional, uh, provincial, and federal level in terms of support. So there were so many, many different factors. And I mean, I feel terrible that artists um, didn't hear uh, directly from us, but our legal responsibility is to deal with the agent. And all the agents were told up front. And um, I think um, probably going forward in future, uh, Agents and artists will want to have, in the event of something similar happening again, will want to be told um, jointly. But mm-hmm. uh, many artists actually give their agents as to be the only contact until they actually arrive in the city. So it was a it was a unique set of circumstances, and um, you know it didn't it didn't read very well. People had the best will in the world, um, but uh, decisions had to be made really rapidly, and better to get the information out there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean it's like the word unprecedented is is very common these days. I mean, w- there's also the con- the conversation about paying the artists regardless of whether the shows go on and you know, some companies are obviously in a position to do that and others are not and I'm thinking specifically of of the the you know, the negative feedback that a company like the Metropolitan Opera received um because I think the the idea the sort of high level idea is that people see the Met as a, as a wealthy company and that it has the means to pay the artists. I imagine that the Met would, if it could, you know, why do you think that, that it is that some companies are, are in a position to do this and some aren't? I mean, is it just their individual fundraising styles or, you know, can you shed some light on someone who doesn't as someone who does run a company?
1: Um, well, I think, a simple reason is that a great deal of income comes from the box office, and depending on your level of subsidy, I mean, I, I always work on the rough equation that in Canada it's about thirty percent from three levels of government. If you're lucky, um, it's about thirty percent from development fundraising, and um, it's about forty percent from the box office. And when the box office collapses, as it as it did for these uh, productions depending on the state of your cash flow and depending on how many performances you do a year and how many people you have on staff, um, it's a complicated um, equation. For example, um, the Calgary Philharmonic laid off their musicians so that the musicians were immediately able to access unemployment insurance. But they've since been able to come up with a formula that is enabling them to re-employ the musicians for payments during the lockdown, because the government is supporting that payment, that payment wasn't immediately evident. So when they laid off all their musicians at the beginning, they made the best decision at the time. But when the government came up with various schemes, they made a better decision. Uh, with the Met, I can't. I can't say. I, I don't work at the Met, so I don't know. Um, sure. Yeah. I don't know what happens there. And I do know that they do have an upper uh, fee limit that they don't pay um, the stratospheric fees for um, artists that say the same artist will have if they sing down the road at the New York Philharmonic. It's There's quite a, a difference. Because of the multiple performances, there's quite a difference in fees. So I, I just can't speak to the them, yet. I just don't know enough about it. But sure. in, Cal- in Calgary, um, the uh, situation for us was, and again, it had to be assessed as rapidly as possible. Um, we came up with um, an immediate cash payment. Um, I think it was one week of the salary. For uh, well, first of all, I think I think it's important to say that we, as artists, the contracts we sign all contain the phrase "force majeure." That is to say, it could be an act of God, a hurricane, a tornado, um, or a, a pandemic like this. These are these are things that are covered by the force majeure clause in the contract. Um, However, I think every company that I've been associated with, and certainly in Calgary Opera, um, we're saying to ourselves, well, okay, force majeure, but I think when this is all over, we're going to want to be able to hold our head high and say that we did everything we could. So we paid, um, I think the first thing we did was to pay uh, a fee, a weekly fee to all the artists, And I believe that uh, artists were able to to reclaim paid airfares, but I'm not entirely sure about that. So um, I I think that may still be a work in progress because knowing the troubles that the airlines are having. What we we then did was talk to Equity and Equity's recommendation – it was more than a recommendation, I think it was Equity's uh, rule, was that two weeks' fee would be paid. So we, me- we immediately paid um, a two-week uh, fee. Now, as a, a, a provincial company like um, Calgary Opera, we present three operas a year on the main stage with the Calgary Philharmonic and the Pit. We do three performances of each. That means that we present only nine performances a year of opera on the grand scale in the Jubilee Auditorium in Calgary. That sort of schedule is the same for um, Edmonton, it's the same for um, uh, Vancouver. Uh, maybe Vancouver has four performances, I'm not sure what their current schedule is actually. POV I think might do a, a few more, um, uh, COC obviously is a different kind of schedule and Manitoba Opera does two operas a year. So um, we don't have a lot of performances to, to, to play with, but immediately out of those nine performances, there was a box office collapse of one-third for the entire year, and that's a lot uh, of money. I mean, it's in the region of three hundred three hundred and fifty thousand dollars $350,000. So um, with the collapse of that money, what then uh, happens has to happen is that the companies, and this we're seeing this everywhere, the companies are inviting audience members to donate the cost of the tickets back to the organizations so that that can be used to ensure that a company stays stable and secure. That's taken longer to process than people might imagine. People have had enormous problems to deal with and dealing with a pair of uh, opera tickets for an event that's three or four weeks away was not something that was high on everybody's um, schedule of priorities when the lockdown hit. So we had no way of knowing for about a month how that would pan out. We have been lucky. We've continued to sell subscriptions um, over the last two or three weeks, although now we're seeing that really falling away as the subscriptions for next year. There have been a sizable quantity of donations um, to the company. It's, I think it's in the region of twenty to twenty five thousand dollars, not as big as in some companies, but as the premier of Alberta said the other day um in alberta we're dealing with a triple whammy we 've got the pandemic we 've got the collapse, the consequent collapse of the economy and um there are hundreds of well i should say thousands of people, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people who have been laid off because of the oil and gas price collapse so um the other day, the Premier of Alberta said that he was anticipating an unemployment rate when well, this is all over of 25%, which is enormous. I mean, it's a huge yeah. <clears throat> drop. Now, that means that some of our sponsors may be roughly placed. Not all of our sponsors. We didn't know if they would all cough up for that period. So it's a huge chain reaction that Calgrappa was part of. We did not have the resources to be able to pay all the artists and if we paid all the artists then we would need to pay all the ancillary staff all the uh uh, the wigs people the hair people um and so on and so forth and um and if we were doing that why wouldn't we pay the orchestra as well so it was it's it's just an enormous um equation and uh i think um I think people have been very understanding with all the companies that I've seen about it. I think there were some initial negative reactions um, on social media, and quite honestly, I don't blame anybody for that because uh, it was a uniquely, it, it is a uniquely difficult time. And as I said at the beginning of our interview today, that I just feel really, really sorry for artists, especially the younger ones with less established careers who rely on waitressing and or waitering tables. Waiting tables, I guess, is the correct vowel, the correct verb. Waiting tables, uh, being bar staff, those kinds of jobs, and they've all collapsed. So it's terrible.
0: Well, I mean, you were so, you alluded to what what I want to talk about next, which is sort of the crux of this whole show, or or the reason I'm I started it. I mean, the question is like, where does where do arts organizations or individual artists fall in this sort of priority list? Because there's, there's an enormous list of, of companies and people who will need help. I'm not sure if there's enough money to help everyone. I I don't know the numbers behind that, but you know, it's a little bit like, you know, are are we going to be forced to decide what is uh, an essential part of society and what is sort of icing on the cake or what is a need versus a want? I mean, you know, where do you think a company like Calgary Opera or its artists falls in sort of the the line that people are going to stand in for help?
1: Well, part of the part of the issue right now is that nobody really knows what the situation is going to be when the lockdown finishes. Um, are people going to have the um, spare cash to uh, go to the performing arts? Are, are companies going to have? Are actually our company is actually going to survive? Um, we've seen already a couple of uh, artist agencies. Really, well, one's gone under. I know of another one that's particularly struggling. Um, I heard the other day of another artist agency that if a certain series of concerts don't happen, which it looks likely, then they're going to go under. A, this is a very these are world famous artist agencies. Um, this is a European one that I'm referring to now, but it's it's a very difficult situation. Nobody really knows. Um, what the situation is going to be when we get back to going in tears. I was reading the other day about the pandemic of 1918 and trying to see if any lessons could be learned. And, of course, medical science wasn't as advanced as it is now. But even so, people were nervous about going into conference halls until 1920, 1921, 1922. It was 1922, four years after the, that pandemic, that things people felt things finally started to normalize. And you know, it's interesting, but when we look at um, the history of music after the great war, there was this great shrinkage of size. Uh, for example, if you think that Stravinsky wrote The Sacre du printemps and it was performed in 1913, and then at the end of the first world war he wrote The Soldier's Tale. I've always thought okay, well that was because um, economic resources were scarce after the war. Well they were, but Audiences were scarce too. And I don't ever remember reading um, in uh, my academic studies at any stage, either as a professor or as a student, that the great pandemic affected um, the creation of art, but it must have done. I think there's a great story there that remains untold um, going back. So what are the parallels? And the parallels are, I think, that a lot of our audience, our, um, especially our opera audience, are of um, an older generation, people with disposable income, who have the time and the leisure to prepare for performances at operas. Despite our best efforts of uh, of being evangelical with the art form, despite our best efforts, it's still predominantly easier for us to sell tickets and to get financial support from, um, should we say, uh, people who are 50 years and older um, for the world of opera. Now, anyone who's over 65, Uh, or over 70 particularly, is going to be very nervous about heading to a packed house for an opera next winter unless there's a vaccination for COVID. And uh, it's not likely, from what we read in the media, until perhaps the middle of 2021 that such a thing will materialize. So how's that going to affect opera audiences Um, It's a little little easier uh, for symphony orchestras because they can target, you know, if if I was in Vancouver, I'd be targeting uh, artists, uh, younger artists like uh, uh, Holly Cole, the Bare Naked Ladies, to perform with orchestra, filling out the place with young people and um, getting good revenue numbers in to pay for the orchestra's wage bill. There's no equivalent in the operatic world for that. There's no pops. There's no operatic pops that can be done that will help pay um, the wages. The other thing is that when all of this, when this lockdown has ended, um, that's when rehearsals will start for opera companies. That's when rehearsals will start for the choral communities. Orchestras can go back to work within two or three days. It takes two or three days for an orchestra to mount a production and get it up there. And if if they can hit it to the right age group, they can bring in revenue straight away. So orchestras are going to have this a little bit easier when the lockdown is lifted. But for the theatres who have to rehearse for a month, like Bart on the Beach, which is now completely cancelled, it's summer season here in Vancouver, they normally have two months of rehearsal before they go into rep with three or four uh, plays, um, either by Shakespeare or pertaining to, usually with some tangential connection to Shakespeare. There are all these... um, All these kinds of productions that involve theater involve incredible teams of creative artists backstage. Choruses need to be prepared, singers need to be prepared. So when the lockdown's over, what's uh, gonna happen first? The answer is orchestras will come out, they will bolt out of the stable door immediately. They'll be so anxious to get back to work. But for us, uh, for theater companies, It's going to take time. And even when we've prepared and are ready to present our first opera, will the demographic that traditionally supports us continue to come out? So um, this is a very long-winded answer to your question. But Mm -hmm. the fact is that nobody really knows what the situation is going to be. What I've just described to you is about as much as we could be
0: certain of right now. The other big question is like, you know, I, I recall sort of anytime that there's a moment of crisis or some sort of um, troubling time that affects a large group of people, sometimes people, have you ever seen that? People quote that Leonard Bernstein quote, you know, about making music more, more powerful, more,
1: more beautiful than ever before. And ever
0: before this yeah. will be our answer to, you know, violence or whatever it is. I mean, is it just me or is this crisis not like anything else?
1: Well, normally I I I knew uh, Leonard Bernstein. I I I worked with him and spent some very very amazing hours of my life in a one on one situation with him back in 1986. And we'll we'll have
0: to have you on for another episode for that.
1: (laughs) That's okay. There's plenty (laughs) on the web about all of that. Right. But this this um, there's stuff on YouTube about it too. People can even see. But the, the the the, the, he was talking about reacting as I believe that quote came from a reaction to the Kennedy assassination or some similar event 9-11 was just such an event yeah. um, uh, and um, perhaps um, uh, Aaron J. Kernis' Second Symphony was composed uh, as a reaction to the first Gulf War there are plenty of pieces like the War Equim of in Britain composed as a reaction to um the, those who lost their lives in the first world war the, the war poets and the second world war uh, the friends of the composer um but those were human frailties those were faults um based around politics around um warfare about the fact that we really don't need to be fighting each other what's unique about this is that we're fighting actually as a species really for our our existence. We'll, we'll master this COVID thing. We'll get over it. I'm sure in three or four years' time, um, we'll look back on this period, not exactly fondly because of all the, the terrible fatalities that are happening, but we'll learn a lot of lessons from it. But right now, there's no one to blame in the long term. Yes, you know we can blame um, presidents, uh, quite rightly, for saying there is no threat. Um, you know you know, what I'm talking about. And we can name um, politicians uh, like the man in Brazil right now, who just seems to be um, uh, a complete idiot. If you'll pardon me saying that, but yeah. the but that we're blaming them for their reactions to the crisis, um, not the actual crisis. So what Leonard Bernstein spoke about, we will make music more beautifully than ever before. You know this. I've seen that quoted over so many. Um, Issues and so many terrorist related incidents in the last 25 years that I almost feel like saying, well, you know, actually, no. We, as, a, as an artist, you always go out, always go out on stage to make music like you've never made music before. You are only as good as your next performance. You cannot rest on a single laurel of the past. It doesn't matter who you are. When Yo-Yo Ma goes out on stage, when Emmanuel Axe goes on stage, when Rennie Fleming goes on stage, when uh, Yannick goes on stage, anyone goes on stage, uh, there are people in that audience that need the message or that have bought into the message of the composer. And we are the servants of the composers. Um, yes, there are people that delight in the virtuosic side of it, but really um, we're nothing more than servants we're 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 helping to impart the philosophical message of this um of this incredible language called music so we always seek to make it beautifully i think bernstein was trying to put the unspeakable into words and he did i mean he he was a brilliant wordsmith in um in so many ways but i think we misquote him i think I've always felt, actually, ever since I was a student, um, my doctor friends, when I graduated, my doctor friends all signed the Hippocratic Oath, that they were going to treat every individual. Well, I, I don't even know what it says, but it says something. It says to the effect that, as an individual, as a doctor of medicine, you will always seek to heal your patient. It's it's a message to that effect. Mm-hmm. I've always felt, as artists, we should have our own version of the Hippocratic Oath, that we will always strive to improve our um, our uh, our artistry and our we have that we have a responsibility a duty if you like it, it, um, with this incredible art form so I'm not so sure uh, that I give a lot of credence in this situation to what to what uh, Lenny said and I have to say it brings us back to this question of some of the stuff that's out there on the web at the moment people are trying very hard to do um tapings and so on and so forth but none of it is as good as being in an acoustical situation where an an opera singer or a singer just opens their mouth and sings acoustically I'm not talking about microphone voices I'm talking about acoustic voices with acoustic instruments and you just hear this natural sound that is a natural part of um, classical music that to me is what is missing the congregating of a community to um, receive art in the most direct and natural form as we uh, understand it as uh, as classical artists? Um, and it sounds so blinking pretentious, put like that, doesn't it? But uh, you know, that's—I mean—that's the reality of it, really.
0: Well, well, I, and I do kind of worry. I wonder how long it'll take. you know, a period of time where we're not allowed to go and have these live concert experiences. You know, I wonder how long before people just idly forget about it.
1: Um, You know, I don't think anyone will, because back in the war, um, when the war was over, troops in the desert um, who were fighting um, on the Allied side were given um, entertainment performances by a group called Enser. Some of these performances were um, uh, light comedy. Some were Shakespearean. Some were classical performances. Some were popular music artists like Vera Lynn and Shelton, and so on. And there was always tremendous enthusiasm for these light haunted moments where uh, the troops and the serving medical staff were able to uh, forget about their trials and tribulations, about the fact that their lives were at risk by escaping into into the arts. And this um, whole idea of music and the arts and entertainment belonging to the people was um, taken up by government in 1945, and the British Arts Council was formed um, Canada Council was formed after that period, I think. And it was an acknowledgement by government that entertainment needed some investment and support that it wasn't possible to get from the private sector um, in the same way. And those were magical moments of national governance that enabled the mushrooming of the arts world as we know it today. And when I say the arts world, I'm talking not only about the performing arts like opera and symphony, but also theater, uh, comedy, uh, even the comedy that you see in nightclubs, even the singers and the jazz that you hear in nightclubs or uh, general clubs or jazz clubs or wherever you are, wherever there's a performer um, right now, that person is part of a gig economy that has been invested in by government to create an infrastructure the building of the theatres, like the Jubilee Auditorium in Calgary, and exactly the same theatre being built in Edmonton, uh, com- a complete with exactly the same faults. Um, the theatre, the Queen Elizabeth Theatre in in Vancouver, the Centennial Concert Hall in Winnipeg, uh, what was formerly the O'Keefe Centre in Toronto. All these places were built during the 1960s because of public demand for spaces for the arts. So we know that at the end of the Second World War. There was this enormous growth in expectation for the arts from returning soldiers, from um, families that were that were, um, if you like, uh, uh, the, the baby boomer parents, and this we know that that happened then. I see no reason to doubt that that won't happen eventually. Now, the real question is uh, that whereas for the last twenty twenty five years. People are used to hiring consultants who will come in and say, if you do this, this and this, then you've got the next decade of strategic planning sorted. Um, All of that, that world of certainty is gone. Um, I don't believe anyone who's a strategic planner can exist on yesterday's philosophy anymore. Um, It's really back to ground zero uh, in terms of planning. What do we need? Um, How long will it take us to get there? I'm very proud of Calgary Opera and that I've been asked to be the artistic director. Um, the last uh, three directors have all been uh, good friends of mine and to be asked to uh, run the company with, with Heather Kitchen, particularly this extraordinary woman who's been such a dynamic uh, theater manager throughout her extraordinary 40 year career in the United States and in Canada. Um, it's a very exciting time for me uh, personally and professionally, but all of a sudden the company I thought I was taking over is likely to have a very different identity in the immediate future. Instead of taking it to the next level, I have to restore it and make it as, um, uh, as valued uh, a contributor to um, creative life in Canada as it was during the Halcyon years when Bob McPhee was at the helm and commissioning operas left, right, and centre, um, uh, and so that's fine. If I own a if I own a castle, and somebody comes along and blows up the walls, that's okay. I've still got my castle, but I have to rebuild it. And that's actually what I, that's actually what we all need to do in this position. We've got to put down this thought of uh, of um, failing upwards. There's no more room in this profession for failing upwards. We've all got to get our hands and knees dirty. And we've got to get down and we've got to build it. And it's going to take us some time. Nobody really knows how long, but it's a long-term project. But it is an incredibly important project because, you know, like Schopenhauer said, the philosopher who um, Wagner so adored, Schopenhauer said, music is a language purely in tones and sounds that takes over where words cease to function on their own. And this is why, uh, this is me now talking, this is why when we put the combination of words with music, opera has that particular potency and it's natural. It's a sound that comes to us acoustically, live, straight from the singer's soul, straight into our hearts and minds without a benefit of microphone or amplification uh, so that we receive the artistry intact. To me, it's still the most potent art form on the planet. And um, it wasn't what I thought I would spend my next few years doing, but actually restoring the company back to where it can be serving future generations. If that's what it's going to be, if that's what it takes, then it's a privilege and an honor to run a company. And um, the sooner people get that kind of philosophy straight in their heads, the sooner we can all get on with it.
0: I did want to ask, because you're an articulate man, um, if you could articulate this sort of problem in my head, um, not a problem but a sort of um, a mystery I suppose um what should people who aren't artists understand about the artistic sort like the kinds of people that pursue this career that can be volatile and difficult um, and requiring a lot of sacrifices even in nor- normal circumstances you know not even considering the present day um, you know it almost seems, as someone who, you know, started out as a performing artist myself, like it almost seems irresponsible to have pursued a career that doesn't offer things like benefits or any sort of insurance. Um, you know, when you're in the middle of some sort of disaster like this, you sort of question your decisions. You know, why did I want to really pursue that love of music when there's, you know, the world is crashing down? I mean, So I guess my question is, what should... You know, people who, who aren't artists, what should they understand about the drive that artists have to pursue their careers, um, even though it's so difficult and so volatile?
1: Well, I have a real beef with politicians who talk about universities being places that will provide solely for the economy in the years ahead. I don't believe that's what a university is for, or a, a university or a conservator education. I believe what we're doing. At university is creating creative thinkers, people who can think outside the box, people who can acquire knowledge and um, breathe life into visions for the future. Whether they be scientists or historians or, uh, God knows, uh, polit- politicians who are reading economics degrees or whatever it is, um, I think that's the real function of universities, to learn to critically think. Two of my children are at university at the present time. One is a violinist, undergraduate at Boston University, where I used to be a, um, on the staff for two years, um, My uh, on faculty for two years. My other daughter is um, an undergraduate voice major at the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester in England. So I've got one working in the field of opera and one daughter working to be An orchestral violinist—that's really what she wants to do. And as a parent, I'm very confident that my two daughters, who are really intellectually lively and um, charismatic young women, real feminist cause, uh, which um, to to their philosophies, are pursuing careers that were pursuing it, pursuing educations that will help them, even if they end up in. Different careers than the ones that they envisage at the moment. Um, I personally feel very strongly that you're these days where it seems nearly everyone does a master's degree at some stage or another, that it's in, that you might as well do your undergraduate years in your passion and then perhaps seek to hone and focus your vision uh, for your master's uh, degree. So, what would I say to people who think? Uh, that question about artists why would you pursue a career that doesn't give you health benefits blah blah Um, and um, i can only give my own experience Um, i began in this business as an assistant conductor and rehearsal pianist for a ballet company in london i was the lowest of the low um i was getting tea for everybody else most of the time playing the late night rehearsals no one else wanted to do. Um, and I was getting paid 52 pounds a week. Um, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I was literally working in the studios out of sight, but in the studios with people like Nuriev, people like Massine. I didn't realize even who Massine was when I first played a rehearsal for him. Um, it was in the last year of his life. And I picked up and accrued some sort of incredible knowledge uh, and experiences in those years, and I did it all by instinct because no one could answer this question for me back then. So, what's the what's the what's the core of it? Um, the core of it is that the gig economy, the the world of freelancing, right now it seems incredibly vulnerable. Because if you're a freelancer, you don't have the resources to, you know, to put $10,000 in the the bank for a rainy day, not when you're 22 or 23. Um, But when you're 22 or 23, you've got a vision and an energy that is the precious, precious resource of youth. When you're older, when you're 32, 33 or 42, 43 Um, Usually, you have a responsibility of a spouse, maybe a child, two children, and your priorities change. But when you're 22, 23, it's you, yourself, you're responsible for yourself. And um, why wouldn't you devote those years of your life to seeing if you can realize this dream of wanting to be a performing artist? And anyway, why would you want to be a performing artist? Well, the answer to that one is a little harder to understand because but if you're a performing artist, you're part of a team, you're part of an orchestra, a chorus, um, a string trio, whatever it happens to be, whatever the form of music making is that you've chosen, um, you're part of a team that are seeking to express the the nearest um, empirical information we've got about the human condition. We don't know why we're here unless you have an absolute core religious belief. And even if you do have a very core religious belief, we still, many religions still don't speak of of how, um, how we're supposed to conduct ourselves and how we're supposed to um, communicate with each other. But composers and artists and playwrights and writers and authors and to a certain extent, critics, although I use that um, with uh, only uh, a certain amount of uh, respectful intonation, um, we all these people are striving to to express these inexpressible thoughts that Schopenhauer talked about, where words cease to function. And um, even the playwright is has to create dialogue that carries a subliminal message. There's no point in listening to dialogue unless you realize that as in everyday life, there are nuances, there are um, ironies, um, there are double entendres, there are all kinds of backstories to every dialogue and every play. And when you're dealing in that very stuff of human communication, whether it be the composer or the or message or the, or the playwright's message, as an artist, a performing artist, you you realize how crucial and how important all this becomes. And um, for me, I remember there was a big turning point around about the age of 40 when I realized that actually my job was not to conduct as well as possible, that my job was actually to empower artists to perform as well as possible, and that they were two entirely different things. And it took me 20 years of faffing about as a young conductor before I finally realized that actually it wasn't to do with me. It was to do with him enabling everybody else. And um, somewhere, I think, in the middle of all that, I realized that, uh, oh, my gosh, this path that I set out on because I wanted to be a conductor has turned out to be so much deeper and richer than I'd ever imagined. And it's that's the kind of journey anyone setting out on this bizarre uh, business is is going to undertake. You're going to find um, points of discovery on the way that are going to reveal many different aspects of your own personality, but also about being a good citizen and having a sense of duty to the community. When I was a young composer, it was all about following Darmstadt Listening to Penderecki, listening to Boulez, listening to Stockhausen. Um, But while I was a student, the world was changing. People like Gavin Bryars and John Adams were coming up through college saying, Hang on a minute, we want to go back to the idea of using the muse, Um, that is to say, normal inspiration, tonal music that can be accessible to the audience, which was diametrically opposed to what Boulez and crew were saying. Um, at the same period Uh, there was a shift in focus and now our shift in focus is not to address those with artistic appreciation but to actually bridge the gap go to the underprivileged in our society um, go to those who've not been able to access art before and let the message of art be universal so what you're dealing with here is something that's universal Um, Don't confuse it with something that's global. You know, my favorite quote of all is um, uh, Robert Robert Lepage, who said once, um, forget global, be local, and then you'll be universal. And that's why we do
0: it. Because it's the title of the podcast, the Everything Will Be Okay podcast, Bramwell Tovey, will everything be okay?
1: Of course it will. Human beings have a great propensity for screwing everything up, but ultimately um, it'll be human beings that put this right and uh, it'll all be wonderful in the end. But there's a lot of choppy water ahead. It's not gonna be easy.
0: This podcast is a Shmapra production.